Welcome to MMU, Murdered, Missing, Unsolved. Across this series of episodes, I talk to the first British journalist to arrive at the scene of what became the most infamous missing person case of a generation, Madeleine McCann. The McCanns had no idea what they were walking into, what holiday they were booking. From his base in southern Spain, I discussed the case with author John Clark, who guides us through his search for the monster at the dark heart of this tragic crime. I needed to understand what created this monster and how he got away with it. Madeleine McCann, the chief suspect. John, picking up from our last episode, I was shocked and appalled by the overt nature of Christian Bruckner's disclosure to Dieter. He had an RV, a huge RV with hidden compartments. And he boasted that he used one of the compartments to smuggle in cannabis across Europe. And it was also big enough, he said, crucially, to smuggle a small child. Now, this seems to me the closest we get to an overarching theory of international child snatchers. And I never really believed these crimes were committed on that scale, John, but this puts a new perspective on that possibility. Oh, yes, exactly. It's it's very depressing, isn't it? Over the last couple of weeks, there have been some exposés and reports that particularly in Germany on a national network, there's been a documentary that looks further links into Christian and the links that he had to child trafficking and snatching. And in particular, there's one really pretty horrific conversation that we haven't really discussed, but that was a, a Skype chat from 2013, where Christian was arrested for molesting the uh, five-year-old daughter of his girlfriend at the time in Braunschweig in Germany. This was going back to 2015. When the police came to his house, they snatched his computers and his various devices and whatnot. They found on his computer one Skype chat with a guy called Panic Spats. And Christian went under the name Holger Vassin, which means Holger, I'm a sinner. In this conversation, he talks about very clearly snatching a young girl and trapping her for days. And this has been published, and it's in my book, The Conversation. But what's really interesting is that the German TV investigators have tracked down who this panic spats is. Most sinister of all, he's clearly a long-term friend of Bruckner's, who was a client of Bruckner's. They swapped videos, photos. He may have been buying videos and photos of Bruckner. And even more sinister, he's an undertaker. He is a very serious, high-profile undertaker in a town in southern Germany who knows everything there is to know about getting rid of bodies. His identity was protected because they were concerned that what could happen to him. But they exposed this guy as one of Christian's regular Skype chats. That conversation is very sinister, and there can be no doubt what they're talking about. And at one point, and I extrapolate, he uses the word mm-mm or mm. The question here is, there's a lot of debate about this on the Web Sleuths forums. Is he talking about Maddie McCann? Question mark, like Maddie McCann. Is it, this is something else you'd like to do like Maddie? And he doesn't deny it. So it's, it's open to conjecture, Donald, but it certainly shows further how involved Christian B is and was in uh, predilections of seizing and snatching children. So we'll come back to the latest developments, but among them was, of course, new revelations from Nicole, Christian Bruckner's girlfriend at the time. And I know she has on off denied that she was Christian Bruckner's girlfriend. That's right. We can actually now say that now with all certainty. Now, of course, I've been saying that in my book for a year and it's out there. She said, and quite clearly, it was at her house where this Winnie Bago was parked when her father, Dieter, had that critical conversation with Christian about smuggling drugs in his Winnie Bago. She actually sued 
built newspaper in Germany for claiming that she was a girlfriend of Bruckner's. They paid out on it. Well, now she's admitted to the Mail on Sunday in England that not only was she dating him at the time, but she said that he was living in her house. She said that he he did have a, a strange fetish for prepubescent children. She said he was very secretive in the way he behaved. Also, she admitted that on the night that Madeleine McCann went missing, she had a long phone conversation with him and he was on a long journey. Moreover, she said he was coming back from a town called Thomas. Actually, it's Tomar in the north of Portugal. I discovered not Thomas. And it's uh, about a four and a half hour journey from Pradeluge. She doesn't give him an alibi, but it was quite simply, she says he was driving back from uh, this town in this long drive with his Winnebago, but she doesn't remember if he arrived. She didn't see him that night. She didn't see him the next morning because she said he didn't know if he arrived and then left early the next morning or what happened. But she did have that conversation conversation with them. And now this is something that the German police are absolutely fascinated about. They've interviewed her three times already. I understand they're going to be interviewing her again in the next week or two to say, well, what on earth are you going on about? You said you don't weren't dating him. You were just a friend. You met him five or six times was a quote that we've heard a number of times. You hardly knew him. So here's where we are. We've got our chief suspect. He's in jail in Germany in relation to another crime. His girlfriend places him in the country. One other huge development, the German investigators have suggested they know the identities of two people they suspect directed Christian Bruckner to kidnap, by order, Maddie McCann. Yeah, this is something that uh, I'm now developing with the German journalist team behind the documentary and with the BKA police, that there's a very sinister Eastern European crime ring that's involved in uh, people smuggling and child pornography. And we have the names and we are starting to look into this. I don't want to say too much at this stage, Donald, but we'll keep you posted on how this goes. But it's something that that I'm very concerned about and I will be taking all, all steps, very high security steps to make sure that we do this in the best possible way. There have been quite a lot of interesting developments behind the scenes. I can tell you now that Hans Christian Volters, the chief prosecutor, has reached out to me to speak to me in the next few days. And I'm off to Portugal again to look at a number of critical leads on the case. And I think it's established from the German documentary now that, and indeed to me, it was said that it was going to be this month, but I think it's this spring. He will be arrested and charged with three offences, one of which is labelled as Category 1 sex crime in Germany, which, which I'll explain in a minute, will put him in prison for life. But first of all, you bring attention to the fact that his phone was at the scene. The documentary there got a technician who proved that, in fact, the phone was indeed within 500 metres of Pradeluge. So they know he was there and his phone was there at that time. So we know he was there. There was a triangulation of a number of masks which were able to locate him within 500 metres. At the time, there's only one mask. They couldn't triangulate the call. You can nowadays normally do it because there was only one mask in the long air. The next mask was so far away in Lagos, they couldn't pinpoint exactly where it is. Normally, when you triangulate calls, you can pinpoint if someone's standing in a street outside or someone's in a house because of course their phone is one part of that triangle. For somebody who was involved in such illicit activities why was he not more phone surveillance aware? There's been another documentary that's been made and it was due to come out uh, in November and then it was coming out in January it's now been put back another couple of months by uh, a British uh, police investigator on Channel 5 and he says well possibly the phone was being carried not by Christian but by another person in the village. He was about to suggest, at least the British papers printed, that this was going to suggest that Christian wasn't there at all, that he had an alibi. He was actually staying 30 minutes away in another town with a girlfriend. I know this girlfriend is, and I'm not going to tell you here, but she apparently was having a fling with him for the week or, or 10 days while she was on holiday around the time that Maddie went missing. 
But critically, the so-called claim of an alibi falls down because she doesn't remember where he was on the 9th of May the 3rd. She was seeing him around that time. And of course, so was Nicole. And so were other girls. There was another German girl who also turned up in a court case, the Dynaminkas court case. He was seeing him in Germany. So he was seeing so many women. But critically, this alibi just doesn't exist. Now, the police have spoken to this girl at length, I can tell you now, and they've had interviewed her twice. They are not worried about this so-called alibi. They know that Christian was in the village. They know he's 100% guilty. They are certain of it, and they will continue pursuing this. Now, we're not going to necessarily get an arrest on Maddie until the autumn, but we can... I can tell you now, there will be three cases of which he'll be arrested and charged in the next few months. So effectively, the German police, it's ever-decreasing circles. We've got them located in the area. Witnesses are beginning to speak. The noose is tightening around him on the Maddie McCann kidnapping. In respect of the immediate prosecutions that are on the horizon, what's it looking like? The three cases in Portugal that they're likely to arrest him on are likely to come together because they're all sex crimes. And one of them is called Category 1. Now, of course, Dinah Menkes, the 72-year-old that was sadistically raped and tied up and videoed, perhaps for Christian to sell on the dark web, which is what many people and what I certainly think is possible. This other crime of Hazel Behan is Category 1. And I understand that if they find him guilty of Category 1, in Germany, they call it, it's a hard one to pronounce, Sickeringsvarung, it's called. And the Germans will probably say that's ridiculous, you sound ridiculous. But that's called preventative detention. And that would mean that he is then held on a special license where only a kind of special panel of judges can allow him to leave. If we accept that if he's done for the Category 1 and the other offences, it might be that it will become absolutely apparent to Christian Bruckner that he's going to spend the rest of his life in jail. If he spends the rest of his life in jail, is it not likely a possibility that he's going to come out and say, OK, hands up. This is what happened. This is what I did. I'm now going to be the most notorious sex offender on the planet. This is exactly the theory that I'm running on. And I think the German police, although they say they know he did it and they have other evidence, what they want is for him to come forward and just admit it. It's interesting that uh, Jutta, my co-journalist in Germany, had seven letters written to her from him in prison. Among one of those letters, and you raised the point, he claims that the German authorities have offered him a sort of witness protection, immunity from prosecution type deal where he can go to this one particular high security prison in Germany that Jutta says is apparently only 20 prisoners and they never get out. And there's a sort of armed guards on every corner. And, you know, they're saying apparently that once he's in there, he'll be looked after. You get everything you want, TVs, videos, you know, any food you want, and you can have that, but you have to sort of come clean and admit on what you've done. That's how I see this progressing. What he's being offered, potentially, he's claiming he's being offered is a, a sweetheart deal. You're going to facing life imprisonment anyway, but if you come clean on Maddie, and crucially, and this is for Jerry and Kate McCann, give them some closure and perhaps point to a place where a body might be found. This is what happens, you know, with Ian Brady and, and recently with Levi Belfield. Various criminals come forward and admit they've done things while in prison on life because, you know, I don't know whether they suddenly get a conscience or, but they certainly give the families of the victims some sucker, don't they, to know what happened and to be able to close the case, which is what everyone really wants to do here, don't they? I know the family and for reasons which are very obvious to everybody, refuse to accept that Maddie is dead. Where does the German police and most investigators stand on the prospect of Maddie being alive? Well, the German police believe she's dead. The British police don't want to say that they say it's a missing persons inquiry. I think the Portuguese police, I don't think they have a fucking clue. 
But, you know, I think that the chance of her being alive is slim. I still think there's a possibility. I think that if he did take her that night and drove to this town called Tomar, where I'm late, going later this week, who knows? She could have been taken out of Portugal that way. I mean, I always assumed that she had been taken across the border nearer to Seville and further south. Maybe she was taken across up in Galicia and then through Asturias and northern Spain. You know, she could have been taken to Germany. It's no coincidence that he, he was interested in building cellars. He's talked about keeping, trapping people for days. If we place Bruckner at the scene in his RV, he snatched Maddie by order or however he did this. Where under the current crystallation of evidence do you think he would have brought Maddie to? And is there any theory as to what happened to her then? Assuming that uh, she wasn't taken out of Portugal into Spain and Germany, then Christian had, and in fact, another fantastically interesting place. I've found two spots that he regularly camped at by lakes. I've been taken to one of these spots, which has some very weird stone circles and odd places a lot of new age travellers go to. And he regularly went to this one spot. The theory is that he would have just dumped her there. He'd have got rid of her, dumped her in the lake. He would have got rid of the evidence fast in a place like that, that he knew well, where he knew there was no one around. If he took Maddie out of Portugal, what would have been his route and where would he have brought her? If he'd taken her out of Portugal, he may have had orders. And this goes back to the, the claims I was making earlier that we've heard that there were two people in particular that ordered this. He would have taken her potentially on a trip through northern Spain, up through France, into Germany. And I don't know, don't know, I I really don't know, but I don't know whether there's people who order this stuff. The thought of it is makes my teeth curl, mate. I really don't want to think about it too much. On the journey to track down Christian Bruckner, we can all agree he's the chief suspect. Do you think he's likely to be charged with the disappearance and, as the German police say, murder of Maddie McCann? When they get him inside for a serious length of time, he's in for seven years, he'll spend at least another four or five years. When they get another long tariff on him, they're going to put it all to him. They, they say they've got the evidence. They say it's circumstantial. They say they haven't got DNA. They haven't got a body. I know that they've got some stuff from the, the box factory and they've got stuff they've picked up in other places. Volta said up to 20,000 items. He didn't say they were all photos and videos, so there were other items. Now, it doesn't take much to extrapolate that perhaps he was taking notes. He might have taken a trophy, mightn't he? He might well have been writing this in a diary. He clearly likes writing. He loves scribbling. He likes taking notes. Could he have been writing a diary about what happened? Could he have been cataloguing his crimes? Serial killers do, don't they? They've pretty much got enough now, I think. What has been the impact of the Maddie McCann case, not only on policing, but on also the social impact on other paedophile networks across Europe and elsewhere? I think one of the, the greatest things about this case is it's, first of all, brought a lot of awareness to paedophile networks around Europe, how easy they were to move around Europe. The Germans have been really on top of their game. There have been so many big arrests over the last few years. A lot of big rings have been closed down. Children have been saved. Now in Spain, they're really up to date on it. The laws have really changed here. Portugal finally, in 2009, 2010, confronted its past. It's so hot in it now. They're really on top of it. They've you know, clamped down on the sort of things that people get away with in 2007. Now it's becoming harder and harder to, to get away with it. And there's, there's much more willingness amongst European authorities to, to track and trace and properly punish these sort of people. Now, for you, this has been a difficult journey and you're dabbling in the stuff of people's souls. And it's a terrible arena to work in because you're discovering horrific stuff. But is this the end of the journey for you? 
Not at all. Not at all, Donald. I actually, uh, I've got plenty of leads that I still want to pursue. Uh, in fact, I'm back to Portugal again later this week. My goal here is to find out finally who took Maddie. Can we have you back when you get any significant leads? Because I think there's no doubt the public interest in this case is unlikely to diminish. There's so much coming out every month now. There's interesting leads. So I'd, I'd be delighted to give you updates whenever you feel like it. John Clark, thank you very much for taking us on this very difficult journey and best of luck. To find out more about the case and what we've discussed in this episode, John Clark's book, My Search for Madeline, is available now. Murdered Missing Unsolved is presented by me, Donald McIntyre, and produced by Inherent Productions and Steve Langridge. Music is by Alex Sane, and additional audio production by John Franklin Audio. <laughs>